All right, uh, we are, we, this is week two of our series, our 66-week series. Each Sunday, we're doing a book of the Bible. And so right now, we're on Exodus. How many people missed last week? You don't, okay, a few of you. You don't get to go to Israel. So, uh, well, okay. If, if somebody else doesn't make it, we're, we're going to draw for the person that has the best attendance. All right, so, uh, you know, maybe you just need to go over to your neighbor's house in the morning and let the air out of their tires if you fall behind, and then that way you can, you know, you can enter the drawing. But you've got to put your name on the ticket, and so the trip will probably be in, in about two years or so by the time we finish this series. And so uh, today we're on Exodus. What a, it's, it's an amazing book. You get your Bibles out. During this whole series, we will not be putting scriptures up on the screen. So you've got to either turn your Bible on or actually physically bring it. Um, but it's just important. And I want to encourage you to actually write in your Bibles. To, uh, and if you don't have a Bible that you feel comfortable writing in, we'll give you a cheap one so that you can take notes inside the, the margins of your Bible. All right. Obviously, last week was Genesis, and Genesis ends with, uh, with the death of Joseph, and we're picking up at, the, at that point. All right, chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and they multiplied greatly and become exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king a new Pharaoh, who did not know about Joseph, came into power. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will be even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, and they will fight against us and leave the country. So... They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as, as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and they spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptian used them ruthlessly. This is, this is tough stuff. So Joseph is the number two guy. He's the viceroy of all Egypt. He is the man, and he just falls, well, his, Israel, Israel falls out of favor with Pharaoh and the kings. And now we come into the great story, the great narrative of the Exodus. Some 430 years of slavery. 
The narrative goes completely silent after this. We don't, we don't see God doing anything. We don't see God answering prayer. There's nothing in the scriptures that says that God did anything during the time that Joseph died and Moses steps into power or influence. Nothing's going on. And, and we complain, 400 years or so, and we complain that God doesn't answer our prayers uh, the day that we pray or the moment that we pray. Are you like this or is it just me? Like, when I pray, I want an answer by the time I'm done with my praying. Right? Isn't that, way that, isn't that how we function? We have to have it, and we have to have it right now. We need the answer now. Because it is how our culture has formed us, and it's how it has shaped us. And we, we are a product of our own society. We are the fast food culture. We are a car culture. I'm not going to wait around for the bus to take me downtown. I'm going to get in the car and go. It's the Southern California culture. That's why, we have, that's why we demand that God answers our prayers right here and right now. And if he does it, then we're ticked off, right? And we get some offense towards God. We've got to realize that our culture affects us in tremendous ways. And what we need to know about the Israelites is that they're pretty much Egyptians. You know, I think Cecil B. DeMille's got it all wrong. Because when we see the Israelites, it's as if they have, it's like as if they've already developed their own um, Jewish culture. But that's not true. I don't believe that it's true. I mean, I'm, you know, again, I'm a history major, history nerd. And we know that if you have spent 400 years in a culture, you begin to look like an Egyptian, act like an Egyptian, dance like an Egyptian, walk like an Egyptian. So, I, sorry, can't help myself. Um, so they were, they were more Egyptian than what we would think of them being Israeli or Jewish or whatever that culture is, right? I don't think that they had skull caps and were running around blowing shafars all the time. Um, they were wearing Egyptian clothes. So, uh, so God's got to take them out. Not only are they, not only has the culture changed them or infected them, but they're just they're full-blown slaves. And we know that that is not how God has designed us. We know that slavery is it is the worst sin on the planet because it involves control, manipulation. Um, and enslavement, forced labor. It's awful. We all know this. But for 400 years, the way that I read the text, their prayers, if they were praying at all, did not reach God. Because, the scriptures tell us, God heard their cries. God heard them crying out to him. And he says that he was concerned for his people. 
So finally, after 400 years of living in slavery, of living in torment, of living and putting up with pain, finally somebody or the community, however it gets placed, they cry out to God and they say, all right, God, we can't take this pain anymore. We're willing to leave. And they cry out to God, save us and free us. And so God hears their prayers. And I guarantee you, they were probably very passionate, powerful prayers. They were probably on their knees begging and pleading that God would free them. And so he sends an answer, and we know who the answer is. The answer is Moses. Uh, we, we know the story. We saw the movies. We saw the cartoon. And so I'm going to paraphrase a lot of it. I'm going to probably skip the important stuff because you know the story. Moses, of course, you know, floats down the, the, the Nile in the basket and... Uh, the Egyptian princess rescues him, and she immediately recognizes him as what? As one of the Hebrew slaves. How does she do that? I'm sure they had other slaves besides Hebrew slaves. Well, it's because he was marked. And we talked about this last week. It's a little uncomfortable to talk about. I don't like talking about it. But he was circumcised, most likely. So he had a physical mark. So they, um, they, they saw the kid, and it's like, well, he's circumcised. Therefore, he's, a, he's one of these Hebrew kids. Yet there was something about this princess that adopts her, and he ra he, he's, he's raised in royalty. He's raised in the Egyptian court. And for some reason, he, you know, well, not for some reason, but he, he gets this heart for God because he sees his people being oppressed when he's older, and he slays an Egyptian, buries him in the sand, tries to hide it, tries to run away, and he gets caught. And uh, the, the, the Bible says that Pharaoh finds out, and then he wants to kill Moses. Why does Pharaoh want to kill Moses? Is it because he murdered another Egyptian, a slave driver? I seriously doubt it. When you're royalty, you can kill whoever you want to kill and get away with it. You can get away with murder. And so, well, he's a slave driver, a hired hand, the help, no one cares about them. So there wasn't a cry to justice. I believe what is being implied is that Pharaoh had figured out that this guy was a Hebrew. And what is going on right now? The Hebrews, there are so many of them that Pharaoh is freaking out. And what does he do? What is, what's the, do you guys know what the, the policy is right now? It's full-blown murder. Pharaoh is after boys. He's murdering young boys. When they get born, he murders the young. Because he's trying to control the population. He's trying to control the male-dominated society. So he, he just, he's out to kill him. So he says, he can't have a Hebrew. So Moses is on the run. And where does he go? He goes to Midian. And for 40 years, he lives in the desert as a runaway. He's, he's, he's running from the law. We would all do this. He uh, gets married, this really probably gorgeous Midianite, Zipporah. And for 40 years, he's this tendon sheep. He's minding his own business. And the scripture says that while he was tending his flocks, 
something catches his eye. And it says it's the, we say it's the burning bush, right? Which it is. But specifically, it says it's the angel of the Lord manifested itself in the burning bush. And this is, you got to get this point. He had a choice. Do I go and check out this strange thing? Or do I just keep on minding my flocks? Curiosity got the better of him. We say that curiosity kills the cat. But when Moses sees this strange thing, that's what it says in your Bibles. So Moses sees this strange thing. He says, I want to go and investigate this strange thing. And it draws him in. This strangeness draws Moses in. And could you imagine if he wasn't that curious about the strange, about the unordinary? Could you imagine if he just put on his blinders and said, you know what, that's a little weird. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to deal with it. I'm a little scared. I'm just going to ignore that burning bush. I'm going to ignore this angel of the Lord that's manifesting in the burning bush next to this mountain of God, so-called. But he gets drawn in. And the angel of the Lord speaks to Moses out of this burning bush. And the first thing that he says, he says, Son, you need to take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when that gets declared, then Moses hits the ground in fear. It's a really good thing. Because we get, begin to see his heart. It's the strangeness that attracted Moses to the Lord. But then when he realizes who he is, when he realizes that he is talking to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of everything, he gets this uncontrollable fear that freaks him out. And when we fear God on that level, God can use us. Did you know that? This is an important theme that we need to understand. Like, should we be afraid of God like we're afraid of a, maybe a mean and abusive dad? Absolutely not. But we need to have this reverence for a, a powerful and an almighty God. And it is not legal for us to have a flippant attitude towards God. It's, it's not healthy to not take God seriously. So they choose to take him seriously. Moses chooses to take him seriously. He gets this fear. And because of that, God begins to give Moses his assignment. What's his assignment? I want you to go to Pharaoh. There's a new guy in town. Everybody that was out to kill you, they're all gone. They're all gone and dead. So you've got a fresh, clean slate. I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you, I've heard the cries of my people. I am concerned for them. I have compassion and empathy for them. I want to free them. And I'm going to use you to do it. All right. And this is, this is, where, the, this is where the mumbling and the, the complaining and the self-doubt begins to boil up within Moses. And we say, oh, what an insecure guy. Moses is just like me. He's just kind of an insecure guy. That might be a little bit true. But guess what else? He is the most well-informed guy that there is. If anybody understands Egyptian power 
If anybody understands the power of Pharaoh, it's Moses. He's been in the courts. He's seen the magicians. He's seen the magic and the majesty and the might and the military power of Egypt. Probably the new kingdom. Do I have a picture of him? No, I don't have a picture of him. Can you put my picture up, Ed? All right. It's not up. Okay, anyway. Um, so he's, there it is. That's, that, that could be him. We don't know. I would really, I, I mean, if I was writing the Bible, I would, I would say who the Pharaoh was. They don't, put the, they don't put the guy's name in the book. I wish they would have. It's really annoying to me. But we, but we think that it was either Ramsey II or Merneptah. Uh, but we don't know. There's no, hist- there's no archaeological evidence of even the Jews being in Israel. There's not a whole, we don't have a whole lot to go on, so we don't know who the guy was. But it was probably this guy. It's probably the guy in the cartoon, Ramses II. It was the age of empire for the Egyptians. They were conquering everything. To make matters worse, he says, I want you to go to talk to this guy. I want you to say, let my people go. In addition to that, I want you to go to the Israelites, and I want you to say, I'm going to be your leader. So he's really insecure about this. Because last time he talked to an Israelite, they had a huge amount of cynicism towards him. Because they said, who are you? You're the guy that killed the Egyptian. And he freaks out, and he runs off. He realizes that the, that the Israelites, his very own people, well, they're not on his side either. So he feels like he's alone in a country all by himself. How am I doing? Okay, I got time. And then he says, you know what, God, I can't do it. Have you ever gotten an assignment from God? Has God ever told you something? And it's so big and it's so audacious and so out of your box and your natural response is, God, I can't do that. I have. I believe that all of us have. We're all called to ministry. We're all called to the priesthood of the believers. We all, we all have something to do. We all have something to contribute to the kingdom of heaven. It's clear in the scriptures. You're not, you're not meant to, to, to be observers and to, to, to sit in the pews. You're, you're called to be active in your faith. You, you're, it's our job to actually equip you and to train you. That's why we're doing this training tonight, this equipping tonight for our family members. We want to give you what we have. Moses says, I, I, I can't do it. I can't do it, and why in the world would they believe me? And God says, well, they're going to believe you, all right, because I'm going to pour out my power. And then when they see the signs and the wonders and when they see the miracles, trust me, they will believe you. And once again, Moses doubts and the insecurity comes in. And he says, well, what about the Israelites? How are they, why would they follow me? How can, how can I influence them? How, how is it that I'm going to influence them, and why would they want to follow me, and what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Who sent me? And and God says, you say this. You say, I am 
that I am has sent me. What in the world does that mean? I don't know. It's Popeye knows what that means. <laughs> He's saying my name is good enough. Like once you understand that, that my name carries power and authority, and if you represent me well, they will follow you. They will have no other choice. You don't have to go into this long explanation. You don't have to give them good theology. You don't have to prove to them that you have a PhD and whatever. You just need to say, I am that I am. I am has sent me. It's a big deal. We, I mean, again, I don't have time to get into what I am actually means. But uh, it's kind of an anchor scripture here. It's kind of a big deal because Jesus alludes to it. Jesus is having a discussion with his usual rivals, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees says, what, what, how do you, what authority do you have to, A, tell us what to do, to lead us? Do you see the, do you see the parallel here? Right? It's the same thing. Jesus was dealing with the same thing that Moses is, but Jesus is a lot better than Moses. What, what, what gives you the right to say that you have the authority to tell us what to do and actually to be the leader of God's people? What gives you the right to think that you can lead God's people? And Jesus responds, you know what? The very man that the covenant of promised was spoken into, Abraham, he rejoiced for seeing my day come. In fact, Abraham has already seen me. He knows me. And the cynical response by the religious elite is, what, you're not even 50 years old. How could Abraham possibly know you? You're not even 50 years old. And Abraham, this happened, this happened a thousand years ago. And here we go. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. So he's referencing this point, this encounter that Moses has with God. He's referencing that point right off the bat. Before Abraham was, I am. You know what he's saying? I'm God. That's me. I'm God in the flesh, right here, right in here in front of you. I'm God in the flesh. And it is at that point where they freak out and they're going to kill Jesus. That's why this scripture is important. It just ties the whole thing together. It's all about Jesus, right? That's the whole, hopefully that's what we can communicate today. Moses says, I can't do it. I understand that you're a big God and you're the I am and all this stuff, but I can't do it because I can't talk. I don't have the natural abilities. I'm not gifted. They think that Moses stuttered or something like that. God's response is, what? who do you think made speech? Who do you think created reason? Who do you think made your brain and your jaw and your mouth? Or I can make you say whatever I want you to say. But Moses can't overcome his insecurities on this. He says, I can't do it. I can't speak. I just, I just, I'm, gonna, I'm going to embarrass myself in front of everybody. I fear, God, I fear people more than I fear you, God. And that actually makes God angry. If you continue reading, God gets mad at Moses. Because Moses still doesn't get it. And he says, all right. 
In God's anger towards Moses, God makes another way through Aaron, Moses' older brother. He says, all right, here's the deal. You will be like God to your older brother Aaron. And he's going to be your mouthpiece. So let's get going. So there's not a whole lot of conversation after this. It's time to go. I'm going to make a way. We're going to make it happen. Aaron's on his way right now to meet you in the desert. He's looking forward to seeing you again. And it's time to get going. And they pack up and they go on the adventure of the lifetime. It is high risk. It's extremely scary. Uh, Moses has every right to be freaking out on the inside. But he does it anyway. And he goes. And he takes Sephora with him. And one of the most interesting things in the Bible that I, I find it completely fascinating. No one ever really talks about it. Now let's take a look. Uh, Exodus chapter 4. Verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he said to him, Uh, Let me go back to my own people. So he's getting permission from his father-in-law in in Egypt to see if my people are still alive. Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. Jethro was a priest. Guess who Jethro is a descendant of? Abraham. Did you know that? Through uh, his uh, third wife. (laughs) So not sure how that works. I'm not quite sure either. But anyway, it's, um, but yeah, after Sarah dies, Jethro, or, or uh, Abraham gets himself another attractive girl. <laughs> Sorry. I don't, yeah, I don't know if that, I, I'll leave it alone. Okay, let's continue. Um, now the Lord said to Moses, in, uh, the Lord said to Moses to, in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. And so Moses took his wife and his sons and he put them on donkeys, started back to Egypt and he took Um, Oh, I forgot this part. And he took the staff of God in his hands. So actually God made way for Moses to actually see a sign and wonder with the staff, right? Really quick point on this. I can't do it, God. I don't have the resources. I I I can't do what you're asking me to do because I've got nothing. God says, what do you got in your hand? He says, I got a staff. And God says, I can work with that. So my question to you right now, what's in your hand? If you feel like God can't use you, what do you have in your hand right now? What, like what, what advantage do you have? What, what resource do you have? So I, all Moses has got is a stick that he beats sheep with. That's it. I got a stick. This is really cool. It's just an ordinary stick. And of course, he throws it down, turns it into a snake, and it's a wild, strange thing. Could you imagine this? It's like, what? this is blowing my mind. This magic trick is freaking me out. And they've got this snake moving around the ground. And then God demands something of Moses that is out of his box. He says, I want you to reach down, and I want you to grab that wild, strange thing. He doesn't tell them that it's going to turn back into a stick. A stick. He gives them no, war- he gives them no illusion of what's going to happen after he grabs this snake. It could bite him. It could kill him. But Moses takes the risk, and he grabs it anyway. And you know what happens to that stick? It transforms 
transforms from a snake back not only into a stick, but the staff of the Lord. So God can take what's in your hand and he can supernaturally charge it. Does that make sense? So what's in your hand? God wants to supernaturally transform it into the staff of God. All right, so anyway, he's got... uh, So he took the staff of God in his hand. Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. Uh, But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Uh, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn, and I told you, let my son go so that he may, what? Worship me. That's important. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn. If that doesn't sit sideways with you, uh, there's something wrong with you. We'll talk that out. Here we go. This is fun. So on their way, at a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. So he gets this incredible commission. He gets the staff of the Lord. He's on the adventure of the lifetime. He's about to ready to perform miracles in Pharaoh's court. He's all good to go. And on the way, they're, they're at Motel 6, and God wants to kill him. Why? But Sephora took a flint knife, cut off the, her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, the bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. All right, so this is really deep theological stuff here. Like, you, you need to have a PhD in theology to understand what's going on. This is what's going on. Uh, Moses was not taking God seriously. What's the sign of the covenant? Circumcision. He didn't circumcise his son. Thank God, Sipporah took God seriously. Moses had this flippant attitude that, you know what? I can just skip this detail, this minor detail. I don't need to, I don't need to circumcise my son. He's a Midianite. But Sipporah understood the importance of covenant. All right, this is what it looks like practically. I'm being completely sarcastic and saying you need to, this is deep theological stuff. This is probably one of the most practical things that we can understand. Moses, okay. Married people, you'll get this. If you're married, guys, you're at home, you're chilling out on your couch, you're just laying around, you're watching the game, whatever. Life is good, right? You just, you know, you got everything together. You got life is good. You're just you're relaxing. You're just enjoying, you know, you just, you're just taking everything for granted. Life's good. And then your wife stomps into the room, and she's, she's got an envelope in her hand, and she slaps your feet with it and says, you forgot to pay the mortgage, and we're in foreclosure, you idiot. You forgot that we have a covenant with the bank, and because you didn't pay attention to the details, we're going to lose the house. 
That's what Zipporah is doing to Moses. He says, you idiot. Don't you realize that you have a covenant with God and you can't have a flippant attitude towards him? The details matter here, husband of mine. And she saved his life. How many times has your wife saved your life? Kept you from doing something stupid. And that's what's going on. It's extremely practical. When God's out to kill you, man, oh. You might, well, the God of the New Testament, he's a nice guy. He would never kill anybody. You know what? I wouldn't put it past him. I don't know. If you're, if you're just trying to, if you're just struggling through life and you're just trying to make it and you're just an average person, I don't know. God's probably not going to kill you if you like mess up or he's not going to do that, right? But if you go into a deep covenant, if you pray scary prayers, look, if I did, I have no doubt in my mind, if I hurt an innocent child, God wouldn't think twice about taking my life. I've actually seen it happen. God will kill you. In fact, he's actually, he, he does want to kill you. He wants to kill everything in you that does not look like him or does not resemble how God intentionally created you, your true self. He's out to kill everything that is in competition with him. So you just need to realize that. God, yeah, maybe he's not going to kill you literally, but he is out to kill you symbolically. He's going to kill off everything that does not look like him or does not look like the way that he's designed you. Now take it seriously, folks. Oh, man. All right. Okay. Moses gets into the court of the Pharaoh. He, uh, this is where we get the, the shootout at the OK Corral. We have the first knockdown, drag out spiritual warfare fight since the Garden of Eden. It's, it's big time warfare. And this is not a cute little history story. This is, uh, this is not a Bible story. This is the most practical thing that we can get into our lives. Because Pharaoh, maybe Ramses, whatever, who knows, Pharaoh is the embodiment of Satan himself. He has enslaved God's people, and he wants to keep it that way. He is hard in his heart. He has no respect towards God. He is full of pride. The Bible says that, he is a, that he's full of pride. And God says, I am no respecter to Yahweh. God, Yahweh has no place in my life. And therefore, Pharaoh has this hardness of heart. And it is a knockdown, drag out fight for God's people. We get 10 plagues. Second service, I'm going to talk about the 10 commandments. But there's a correlation between the 10 plagues and the 10 commandments. Uh, numbers are very interesting in the Bible. There's threes and sevens and tens and twelves and forties. And God says, all right, I'm going to release these ten plagues. Blood, frogs, flies, cockroaches, boy bands. 
junior high girls. I'm going to release this on to Pharaoh and Egypt, and they're going to relent because they can't stand boy bands. And they go at it. They go at it. Five plagues in that Pharaoh is not bending because he does not want to let go of his slaves. He's got them, and they can't get out, and so he's not going to let them out. Uh, after, after plague five, Satan realizes that he's losing ground. The power of God is overcoming them. The magicians can't keep up. Whether the magicians were performing actual real miracles is debatable. I think that they probably were. There is power behind Satan. He can do stuff. Satan can do magic tricks too. I've seen it. So yeah, it, it can happen. But he loses ground. He can't keep up. And so Satan begins to bargain. He begins to reason with God and God's people. What's the whole point? What does what Moses go into Pharaoh's court saying? He says, All right, you're going to let my people go, and we're going to go into the desert, and we are going to worship. They're also going to run off. <laughs> so he presents it like, we need to go worship. We're going to go in the desert, and we're going to worship, and we're going to sacrifice. Pharaoh says, uh, yeah, yeah, you're actually going to run off on me too. That's true, right? So Moses is in there, and they're not completely upfront on that fact. First thing that Pharaoh says after he begins to, to, to relent a little bit, he says, all right, you guys can go and worship your, you guys can go and worship your God, but you're going to do it in my territory. I'm not going to let you go out to the desert. You're going to worship here. Moses says, no, I'm going I'm to pull the trigger again. You're going to see another plague. And so the Satan says, all right, all right, all right, all right. Um, you can go and worship your God, but don't go too far. Why is this the most practical thing that we can hear today? Because this is what the devil's telling you today. He says, you can worship God, but just don't go too far. Don't make it a consistent habit. Don't make worship a lifestyle. You can have one foot in the church and one foot out the church. In fact, we have this uncanny ability to compartmentalize our spiritual lives. We're extremely good at it. We have our secular life over here, and on Sunday we have our spiritual life. And one of the major deceptions of our culture is that we're okay with it. Like it doesn't even register anymore on our moral compass. We can party all night on Friday night and get drunk, get wasted. We can go to church on Sunday. Uh, we don't even feel the need to repent, and we're okay. It doesn't bother our conscience any, anymore. We are so sucked into our culture, we don't even know the difference between right and wrong, and we can't even hear God's voice when God is saying, oh, you're all in. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. That's the lie that the devil tells you. The devil has an identity for you, which is that you are a lazy, lying group of people. Pharaoh calls the Egyptians lazy over and over and over again. He says, that, you know, you're not, you're not God's children. You're slaves. So Moses releases another huge plague. Cockroaches. That's not cockroaches. I don't, I don't know what it is. It's bad. 
Pharaoh says, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. I give, I give. Uncle, right? Uh, okay, boys, like, like when you wrestle somebody and somebody says uncle and you let them go, it's like you, you're, you're, you're waiting for them to jump on you again, right? At least the guys that I played with, right? They played dirty. So Moses yells uncle, but he doesn't mean it. And he says, all right, you, got, you, you can't go. He says, tell you what. I'm gonna, I'll, 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 I'll make another deal with you. You can go and worship, but it's only the men can go. It's only you promise. We're going to do a promise keepers conference out in the desert. Men's breakfast. That's all you guys get. Because the devil's strategy in your life is to separate your family, is to divide your family. If he can get you know what? If only one of you is worshiping, then he's won the deal. If your house is divided, then house divided can't stand, right? So if, if, if only one spouse is worshiping, if your kids can't come in and worship, if your house is divided, you will fall. And the devil knows it, and that's what he plays into. Oh, I'll let you guys go and do your thing. I'll let you worship, but it's only guys only. You can't take your family. And God says, no, we were meant to worship together as family. And he releases another horrible plague. I think it was uh, hail and, and fire, some really cool thing. And then this is very interesting. Pharaoh says, uncle, okay, I give up. And this time he says, this time he says, I have sinned. What? Pharaoh is repenting. He says to Moses, I have sinned and my people have sinned. We are in the wrong and you and the children of God are in the right. Pray for me. You know what? This is really cool. If you, read it, if you keep on reading, Moses has his number. Moses says, you know what? You're repenting. He says, but uh, you ready for this? You don't fear God. All right, you need to pay attention to this point because this actually could be you. You're not Pharaoh, you're not the devil, but this could be you. Because maybe you repent all the time, every Sunday, or every other Sunday, or ever when life gets bad and you drag into church, and you repent, and then you just return right back into the old same old habits. After you say uncle, after you get released, after things are better, you just kind of go back into your own lifestyle, whatever it might be. Why do we do that? It's because we don't fear God. You see, the key here is that Pharaoh does not fear God. That's why it's not a true repentance. That's why it doesn't count. That's why it is deceptive. So, okay, you're not that way. Sorry for saying that. But you know people that are. And you are, chances are you are in relationship with people and you know who they are. And they will say stuff like, pray for me, brother. Oh, my bad, I messed up. Pray for me. Oops, my bad. Oops, my bad. But they don't really mean it. The only reason why they're saying, oops, my bad, pray for me, I'm sorry, I repent, is because they fear you. They fear people. It's, they're motivated by the fear of man 
and not the fear of God. And you're going to fear one or the other. Either you're going to fear what people think about you, what people treat you, or you're going to fear God. It's better to fear God. You get more done. Oh, I got to stop. Dang it. All right. Khalid, come on up. <laughs> All right. Um, this is my new friend, Khalid. He's a worship, one of the worship pastors, uh, pastoral care at Pasadena House of Prayer and serves in a local church as well. He's an amazing guy, as you can tell. Thank you guys for coming out. All right. My favorite plague is darkness. The ninth plague, God sends out darkness on all the land of Egypt. And it says that it is the darkness that can be felt. The Egyptian candles did not work, but the Israeli candles did work. And it is at that point, it is that plague that breaks the principality over Egypt. Who's the God of Egypt? It's Ra, it's the sun God. And God and Moses humiliate him. And then we go into Passover. And I don't have time to talk about that. I'm so sorry. That was the point of the whole message. If I have the ushers come forward and pray. All right, would you just stand with me as we, as we sing this last song and take the offering. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, even though it might sit sideways with us, that this last plague of the death of the firstborn was a sacrifice, and what kept the destroyer from entering into our houses was the application of the blood. And so, God, right now, I pray that we will just take that blood of Jesus and that we will apply it to every bit of our lives, the, the lives that we've compartmentalized, our secular lives, our sin life, the, the way that we hear, the way that we see. God, I pray that we will apply Jesus' blood to every part of our being that needs you so we can enter into a right relationship with you, a new covenant, as Jesus said. So God, right now, I just pray that you just move us into this new covenant in your name, Lord Jesus. We thank you so much for your goodness and your provision and your breakthrough and that we can fight the enemy with all that we have and that you fight our battles for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.